Good morning. I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point. And as I listen to that challenge and kind of sets the stage for the message today and next week, we're going to be diving into what does it mean to be biblical community? If you're a transformed follower of Jesus Christ, you've trusted him as your savior and he's in that process of changing your life. Would you just raise your hand and say, yes, that's me. I'm a transformed follower of Jesus. Okay, great. Most of us here. So I want to say three things about you as we get started today that are true and hopefully recognize it. You are called out from a broken world. You're called together in biblical community, and you're called on mission to the world. The word ecclesia is really a compound word, which means basically called together. But it was used in the context of the, of the Greek um, democracy, say in a city like Athens, and they would take out of the population of the general population of the people, those that were actually citizens, and they would be called out, and they'd be called together to do and vote and to, and to interact together so that they could improve the condition and the welfare of the people of the city. So they were called out, called together, and called on mission. So I want to have, practice that with you. Just have a little fun this morning, a little uh, spiritual calisthenics that we're going to do, okay? So I want you to, first of all, say the word ecclesia with me, okay, everybody? Ecclesia. One time with a little more zest, okay? Ecclesia. And ecclesia means, I'm going to show you the hand motions, and you're going to do them without hitting the person next to you, okay? You are called out called together, and called on mission. All right, so let's do that. We're going to say the word, and we're going to do it two times, all right? Ecclesia, called out, called together, and called on mission. Hopefully nobody got wounded in that process. Let's try one more time. Ecclesia, called out, called together, and called on mission. And that's exactly what it means to be the church. See, we are citizens of heaven, been called out of the, the world by God, called together to assemble together as God's people so that we can then go out and impact the world for Christ. So we gather to worship and learn and fellowship, but we scatter to be able to make a difference in a broken world. And Pastor Joel said it, I want to say it again and put it on the screen. The church is a group of people set apart by Christ to be on mission for Christ. We are set apart uh, another way to say that, you're special. <laughs> you're set apart to be on mission for Christ in this world. And we're going to be delving into the first two chapters of the book of Acts, uh, both today and next week. This week, we're going to be looking at five foundational truths for biblical community that we find in Acts 1 and, and Acts 2. We're going to then next week build on that as Pastor Joel talks to us about what does it mean to actually live in that. The book of Acts is basically a history of the early church. That's what it is. Both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by Luke. That's why Luke's got his name, okay? And he was a companion of Paul. He was actually a medical doctor, and he writes those two books that give us the history of the Christian movement. If you just read Luke and you read Acts, you would get the, the, the idea of the beginning of the church. And there is a continuity between those two books, um, matter of fact, they both were written to the same individual, a guy named Theophilus. He was a Roman official. We think by the time the book of Acts was written, he actually became a follower of Jesus. And so Theophilus, he's written to. In both of them, we have this, um, the history of the Christian movement. 
Both Luke and Acts have a literary device, a way of expressing creatively that we call it a journey motif, like you're on a trip. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is constantly on a journey. He's on the move. He's in Galilee. He's down in Jerusalem. He's all over the place. And then towards the the middle of the book, he's moving gradually towards Jerusalem, where he's going to die, be raised from the dead, and he's going to ascend to heaven. We'll get into that in a few minutes. In the book of Acts, you have a journey motif. It starts in Jerusalem, moves out to Judea, moves to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Both of those books have that as a, as a characteristic. And you kind of think of it like a map or a GPS of what's going on. But here's the thing I want you to see. Both in the incarnate ministry of Christ in his physical body, he came as a baby, born in a manger, lived his life, taught, ministered, did miracles, died on the cross, rose again in his physical body. You have an overlap at the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts with the story of Christ's suffering and death, the story of his resurrection, and the story of his ascension. End of Luke, beginning of Acts. It's intentional. Luke is trying to say this to us. The movement that Jesus started in his life is continuing today in the church. What Christ did in his physical incarnate body, he is still doing through his spiritual body, the church. That's you and that's me. There's continuity that is there. It's going on. So here's the first of these five foundational truths. Now listen, don't try to write everything down this morning. But try to capture these five truths. Make sure you get these down, okay? Here's the first one. Christ is the risen head of the church. Christ is the risen head of the church. And this matters a lot. It matters a lot. So I'm only going to have you stand one time to read Scripture because we've got other Scripture in here. And I know that um, you probably are still recovering from Christmas and New Year's and everything. So stand once with me. And when we get to the underlined part, read it out loud. So here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So watch this as you look at that. He presented himself alive after his suffering. That points to the suffering and the death of Jesus on the cross. And then it says he presented himself alive and appeared to them 40 days in his resurrection body. He showed and demonstrated that it was a real physical body. He said, reach forward and touch me. Give me food to eat. I'm going to prove that this is real. So Christ proved his death and his resurrection, but it doesn't end with that. It continues to his ascension. So look at the next passage. Acts 1, 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, probably angels, stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And Jesus, who was taken up from them into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. So this is talking about Jesus' ascension, his return to heaven, but it also points to his second coming. Catch this. The the two angels say to him, 
You've seen Jesus go back to heaven physically, visibly with your eyes from the Mount of Olives. He's caught up. He's coming back to the same spot, Mount of Olives, and he's going to be visible and present. Jesus is coming back again. Friends, I'm as confident and certain of the second coming of Jesus as I am of the ascension of Jesus because the two are linked together. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So this is great. Jesus is the risen head of the church, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But here's, here's the thing I want you to catch. Jesus is not the figurehead, but he's the functioning head. You say, what's the difference? I like reading history, and so I read a certain amount of British history. And I want to tell you, there was a day when the king of England had real authority and power. If he wanted to say, off with your head, off with your head. If he wanted to banish you, he could banish you. If he wanted to go to war, he could go to war. If he wanted to tax you, he could do it. And not so much today. The king of England has a lot of money, but not much real authority. He's a figurehead. The prime minister, the House of Lords, the House of Commons is where the real authority is. Jesus is not like that, my friend. Jesus is not an absentee head of the church because in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we see Jesus in the midst of the churches, and that's his present position. You can't see Jesus, but he's present here. His spiritual presence is among his people. That's where he is. That's what he's doing. And he is not a figurehead. He's a functioning head. Now, th now think about this for a moment. One of the metaphors of the church in the Bible that Paul particularly loved to use is the church is the body of Christ. I call it teaching theology through anatomy. He's saying, I want to explain some things to you about the dynamic of living in biblical community by using the metaphor of a body. So friends, your head is rather important to your body. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, your head's where your brain is, your head is where most of your senses are, your head is where your sense of balance is, and if all of a sudden your hand no longer communicates with your head, you're going to really struggle. If all of a sudden your left leg doesn't communicate with your head, it's not going to work for you very well. Matter of fact, every part of your body is designed by God to interact with the head because the head has real authority over the rest of you. In the same way, Jesus is the head of the church. Matter of fact, look at this passage from Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and read the underlined part with me. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means have first place. What's that saying? Paul loved this metaphor of the body, but he emphasizes in Colossians and Ephesians that the, that the head of this body is Jesus. And he's not a figurehead, he's a functioning head. And so that means that every one of us has to have a relationship with Jesus that's ongoing and personal for him to be that functioning head of the church. We do that as we pray. We do that through the word of God. We do that as we communicate with Jesus as the head of the church. We can only, we can only really function well as a church if every member is submitted to the headship of Jesus Christ. Friends, if life is about self, then it's not about the headship of Christ. One of the things that I, I wish I could take every young adult and every child and just say, listen, I just I want to save you a lot of pain and suffering. I'm just going to tell you something. Life is about loving God and loving others, which means you cannot 
love yourself as the dominant purpose of your life. If life, if all your ears are going in, they're not going up and they're not going out. Loving God means I cannot put myself, I have to die to myself to love God. I have to die to myself to love others. Having Christ being the head of the church means he is the one who's in control. He's the one who's in authority. I want to ask you the question right now today, first Sunday in 2024, are you living in submission to Jesus Christ? Are you personally living in submission to Jesus Christ? I can promise you this. Any area of your life where you're not living in submission to Jesus Christ, you will not have peace. There's a, there's a truth throughout Scripture that it's only through submission to the authority of Jesus Christ that I can experience his peace. He is the head of the church. Are you living under the headship of Christ in submission to Christ? Here's a second one. The Holy Spirit is the personal power for the church. The Holy Spirit is the personal power. I say personal power because sometimes people think of the Holy Spirit as God's active force. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is a person like the Father is a person and Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, but the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers our lives. So Luke in his gospel emphasizes at the beginning that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, did his ministry in the Holy Spirit. He shows up at the synagogue in Nazareth and says to them, he says, the Spirit of God is upon me. It's a really strong emphasis in the beginning of Luke's gospel. In the beginning of the book of Acts, the same thing. You've got Pentecost that we're going to look at. You've got that happening. And so it's really taking place. Look at Acts 1, 4 to 5. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, that's the Holy Spirit, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, friends, happens at the time of conversion for a believer today when you are brought into union with Jesus as the head of the church and every other believer as a part of the body. It is that, that act of God, that, that wonderful act of God, where the moment you were saved, you became a part of the body of Christ. Christ is your head, you're a part of the body. The baptism of the Spirit. People get confused about the baptism of the Spirit, but friends, I want to be clear about it. The baptism of the Spirit happens at salvation. It is that work of God that brings you into union with Christ. Second thing that we see, there's a promise of the power of the Spirit. Look at Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Say that with me. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that promise of Jesus that the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you actually happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. I wish we could do a deeper dive into this, but let me give you the 10,000-foot view of it, all right? The day of Pentecost was a feast of the Jews. It was their feast of ingathering of their crops, which is so appropriate because on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were gathered in and trusted Jesus. The day of Pentecost was a, was a day when certain things happened. The people were in an upper room gathered, probably in prayer, based on the end of chapter 1, and the, you could hear a wind blowing manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, there were like tongues of fire, like flames of fire on the head of every person in the room. You say, what's that about? Well, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and the temple, God would show up in, in a pillar of fire, 
showing his presence. But now his presence was in the life of every believer because every believer is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the tongues of fire on every believer. And then they begin to speak with tongues. What is that about? Known languages, unknown to the speaker, like me speaking Russian today. If I got up here and spoke Russian, you would know it's a miracle of God because I don't know a word of Russian. Okay, so that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. We know clearly from that passage that they were speaking in known languages. Others who knew the languages heard them, but they had never learned the language. It was a miracle. And that manifested the presence of God. What's that about? I believe you have a flip of what happened on the Tower of Babel. God confused the languages on the Tower of Babel because they were having a false man-centered unity. God says, I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to, dis I'm going to disperse the languages. Now, they're speaking with other languages because God's saying there's a new thing happening here and there is unity in the body of Christ. So cool. So cool what God did. Day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost. And the church is born. Friends, the church begins on the day of Pentecost. That's the birth of the church. Jesus had said in Matthew 16, I will, future tense, build my church. It starts here in Acts chapter 2. I will build my church. God had been working through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and he has a plan future for Israel. But now he's going to do a new thing. Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. He's going to do a new thing. It's called the church, and it's born. And Luke and Acts give that continuity. But the question here today, are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, we, had a f we had some friends, had three boys, and one day one of the boys got up on the garage roof and tried to fly. It didn't work well for him. He broke his arm. You know, friends, I, we weren't designed to fly our, on our bodies, if you wanted to fly, I would, I would suggest that you would get in a jet to do that or a rocket. A jet propulsion is made to break gravitational pull so that you can actually go somewhere, all right? And a rocket has the power to break the gravitational pull. Do you know what, friends? I found in my Christian life, I have a gravitational pull called the flesh, my sin nature, my bent towards rebellion against God and selfishness. Friends, it's not hard for me to be selfish or to sin, it's as easy as slipping on a slippery rock in the middle of a wet stream. Easy for me to do that. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome that. So my question today, are you starting out 2024 and saying, I will live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Some of you just haven't even thought much about that. God wants to have a personal relationship with you as your heavenly father. You agree with that? Jesus Christ, as your Savior and Shepherd and Lord, wants to have a personal relationship with you. Do you believe that? Then I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit wants to have a personal relationship with you, too. One of the passages that really speak to me is that we are called to be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. We are also called to walk by the Spirit, Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and following. And we can know that we are because it, it changes our relationships and it changes our character. Here's one passage that helps me measure, am I living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. This is what it says. The fruit of the Spirit, that organic spiritual fruit in your life, love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. We actually have in our condo those words on, on something that's mounted to the wall, so we have to look at it every day. It's benefited me. Am I living a life of love, joy, and peace in relationship with God? Am I living a life of long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness in relationship to others? Am I living a life of faithfulness, meekness, and self-control concerning myself? Nine fruits, three towards God, three towards others, three towards self. Friends, you can measure that. Am I living that life? And if you are, friends, you're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to suggest to you, don't try to jump off a roof to fly. Don't do that. Don't go home and try that, okay? Don't encourage your kids to do that. Don't try to put yourself into orbit. Doesn't work. Don't try to live the Christian life not in the power of the Holy Spirit for the same reason. Okay? So, question is, are you living in the power of the Holy Spirit? Here's a third truth. Mission is the clear agenda for the church. Mission is the clear agenda for the church. God has called us out, together, and on mission. Mission is a clear agenda for the church. So, Acts 1, 6-8. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And read this with me. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So if you look at that passage for a moment, the disciples are asking a question, what's the agenda? Jesus, are you going to establish, reestablish the kingdom of David back into the kingdom period for Israel. And Jesus doesn't say it's not going to happen, but he says not for you to know the timing and, and the, um, not for you to know the seasons or the times that God's put in his own power. By the way, if someone starts telling you, I know when Jesus is coming back and I know when the rapture is going to happen, run as far as you can the other direction according to this passage. They're off base. They are off base on, on that. And so he, he's giving him them here the, the mission the mission. His answer is really given in a five-fold commission by Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and here in Acts 1, 8. In this commission, he gives a focus on the call. You're called to be witnesses. If you heard that excellent message by Josh Fuller last Sunday about being ambassadors for Christ, that's what we're talking about. Being a witness for Jesus means that your life has been changed, and so you're being intentional and in developing relationships with other people. And so that's what we're called to be a witness. We, it's not only the call, but the power. The power for that witness is the Holy Spirit. And the plan for that witness is in Jerusalem, Judea, sort of like that's moving from Grand Rapids uh, area to the state of Michigan, to Samaria, which is going cross-culturally and cross-ethnic boundaries, to the ends of the earth. And friends, I want you to know that the early Christians took this so seriously that they actually, in the first generation, reached all the way to Spain, all the way across North Africa, all the way to India, and all the way in, deep into Europe in one generation, without modern transportation, without a printing press, without technology. One generation. They took it seriously. We're in, they're saying. We're going to do that. And so they began to, to share it. Friends, where does that mean for you? Well, it starts with where you are. Your cul-de-sac or street. Your job and the people around you there. The office you work in, the factory you work in, the trades that you do. Your classroom 
your, where you work out, your extended family, wherever you network with other people, you're called to be a witness to them. Well, what does that look like? First of all, notice them. <laughs> Pay attention. And those that you suspect may not know Christ, start to pray for them and pray for opportunities. I, I literally, make a list. Make a list of people and start praying for them by name. And pray not only that they would come to Christ, but that you would have the opportunity and the boldness to share Christ. Build relationships. Find common ground. Find common interests with them. Spend time with them. And share how Jesus has changed your life. And ultimately, you get to share the good news message that the, the problem that we have with sin can only be solved with what Jesus did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. And friends, I want you to know, that wasn't just good news 2,000 years ago. It's really good news today. Do you think we live in a broken world today with a lot of people confused and hopeless and hurting? Yes. What's the solution? The solution is Jesus. The solution is his message. So are you living on mission with Christ? You know, one of the cool things, you hear us talk a lot about living on mission and people going to a lot of different places in the world or in our country, and that is so cool. But I think the coolest thing of that is not only what they get to do out there, but what is different about them when they come back here. You say, what do you mean? People that go out and all of a sudden they're sharing Christ with other people in another place, in a, in a Judea, Samaria, end of the earth kind of thing, they come back better equipped and prepared to do that here. And it changes them. We need to be on mission as a church. Friends, West Michigan has a lot of hurting people, a lot of broken people, a lot of broken hearts, a lot of broken relationships. And you have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you're called to be intentional and move towards them, to be intentional. We're called out, we're called together, and we're called on mission for Christ. We're called to do that. Are you living on mission with Christ? Here's the, the fourth one. Prayer is our humble dependence as the church. Prayer is our humble dependence as the church. Acts 1, 13 to 14. Follow along as we read that on the screen. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Then read this with me. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Friends, 14 times in the book of Acts, 14 times the church is in prayer. 28 chapters, 14 times. That means at least every other chapter, there's a mention of prayer. The early church was the church of, of God because of that. Luke emphasizes prayer in the gospel of Luke, prayer uh, experiences of Jesus, prayer teaching of Jesus like no other gospel. And in the book of Acts, he does the same thing here. That's continuity. In this case of prayer, though, the church is praying for leadership, Judas has died. They got to replace him. So what do they do? They gather together and they pray for God's wisdom and God's direction. It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. And they prayed scripture. If you look at verse 20, if you've got your Bible open and you look at Acts 1.20, there's two scripture verses that they're praying there. So they turn scripture into prayer. Psalm 69.25 and Psalm 109 verse 8. They actually are taking and they're praying the word of God. Friends, I want to, if you want to really find a, a great way to pray this year to really encourage you, mix prayer and scripture together. When I read my Bible, I pray before I read. 
God, show me what you have for me. Open my heart. And then I pray as I read, as a conversation with God. And then I pray after I read what he spoke to me about. And I don't make it complicated. Some people complicate their Bible reading. Mine is really simple. I just want to know who is God. I want a worship focus, and I want an application focus. And I turn both of those into prayer. I actually write it out, and then I pray it to God. Listen, friends, you don't have to wonder if you're praying in the will of God if you're praying Scripture, because the Scripture is the will of God. So when you pray Scripture, you're praying spot on. The other thing is, you never run out of things to pray about. You never run out of things to pray about. Uh, one of the things that concerns me is many Christians, prayer has become a guilt trip to them. And I want you to know that I am not a travel agent for a guilt trip. Not about that. Uh, Spurgeon, great preacher of days gone by, said this, most prayers need to be cut short on both ends and set on fire in the middle. That was a day of really, 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 really long prayers. And people thought they were more spiritual because they prayed long prayers. Spurgeon would say, no, there needs, needs to be a, a heart talk. Listen, friends, prayer ought to be for you like the intermittent wipers on your car. Next time you turn them on, think about this. Pray, 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 pray. Pray. In other words, through the day, prayer is like breathing, friends. Prayer is like breathing. Um, I did a little experiment in the first service. I'm not going to do it at this point. Um, but, but I had everybody hold their breath for 10 seconds, and then I had them hold their breath for 20 seconds, and then I had them hold, hold their breath for 30 seconds. I'm not going to do that. But, but think about this. If you did that, most of you could hold your breath for 10 seconds. Many of you would be able to hold your breath for 20 seconds. I think most of you could hold up for 30 seconds. If I then went to 60 seconds, some of you would be keeling over, okay? And if I went to 120 seconds, it may be a problem. You say, well, what's the point? Prayer for your, for your spiritual life is like breathing to your body. Prayer in your spiritual life is like breathing to your body. We breathe in prayer. We breathe in prayer when we talk to God, when we commune with him. And friends, don't try to talk to God like you're talking through a stained glass window voice. He's not impressed. One of my greatest joys in my life is every once in a while I get to pray with a brand new Christian who's just trusting Christ in that moment. And we get down on our knees and they pray. And it's so cool because they, they don't really know how to sound religious and churchy. They just talk to God from their heart. And I'm thinking, how is it we unlearn that? How is it that we unlearn what it is just to talk to God from our heart? Prayer is heart talk. Don't complicate it. Are you living in prayer before Christ? If not, maybe that's the reason you're kind of feeling a little discouraged and your spiritual life a little flatlined. And you're, listen, friends, prayer. That's why our elders in our church, they are men of prayer. When we have a problem we're trying to solve, when we have a decision we're trying to make, we'll say we're going to take a week, two weeks, a month, and we're going to pray over that. And Pastor Joel will often say when we get together, men, if you haven't prayed about this, don't speak to it. Do you know how many problems would be solved in local churches if all leaders did that? They sought God in prayer before they just went off on their own. Prayer is what we need to be doing in living in, in the spiritual life. One more. Scripture is a spiritual authority in the church. So Luke emphasizes Christ's teaching ministry in the gospel of Luke, parables, preaching, conversational teaching, and he also does in the book of Acts. The risen Christ at the end of the gospel of Luke with the Emmaus disciples is teaching them. 
Christ in John's gospel in the upper room is teaching the disciples. So throughout the book of Acts, you have the teaching ministry of the church, the scriptures being a, a, a focus. The Bible was the authority for the early church. They would take the Old Testament and they would understand and apply it now in light of Christ. They, as, they, as they received the Gospels, they would read them out loud together. They would take the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude, and they would read them, the book of Revelation. They would read them because the Scriptures were the authority for them. And somehow we kind of lose that. One of the things that I love about Acts chapter 2 is you have Peter's sermon. This is the first sermon in the, in the Christian age. And, and I love it because for me, I keep coming back to it and say, what should, what should the church's preaching be? What should preaching be like? And I kind of evaluate my own preparation based on this. Let me, let me kind of give it to you. Peter's sermon, if you check it out in Acts chapter 2, starting about verse 22, was Christ-centered. Christian preaching needs to be Christ-centered. It's exalting Christ, it's encouraging people to have faith in Christ and to commit to and follow Christ. It's also gospel-focused. Peter, in this sermon, preaches Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the only means of grace and salvation. It's Christ-centered, it's gospel-focused. It's biblically rooted. It's really cool because the first part of the sermon, he's kind of uh, arguing what was really happening in the in speaking in tongues because some were marveling and some were mocking. And so he quotes Joel 2, 28 to 32 and says, this is what's going on here, people. And then the second part of the message, he's basically proclaiming Christ's resurrection. And he again takes two Old Testament passages, Psalm 16, verse 8 and 11, and Psalm 110, verse 1. What's going on? Peter is just giving exposition of the Word of God. It's what we try to do here. We just take the Bible and say, let's look at this together. Let's understand it together. Let's apply it together. That's what Peter did. Christ-centered, gospel-focused, biblically rooted, spirit-empowered. Peter, this guy who cowered before a slave girl while he's warming his hands and Jesus is under trial, is now in the power of the Holy Spirit, boldly proclaiming the Word of God, and does it repeatedly through the book of Acts. Spirit-empowered preaching. Passionately communicated. For Peter, preaching wasn't... For Peter, preacher was... Let's go get it. He was passionate about it. It's not like the guy that um, one of our presidents, who was a very introverted president, went to church one Sunday morning without his wife, came back, and his wife said, well, how was church? Fine. Um, well, how was the sermon? Good. What is the sermon about? Sin. What did the pastor say about it? I don't think he was for it. <laughs> you know, listen, that's not, that's not what preaching is. Passionate and personally applied. At the end of Peter's sermon, people weren't saying, who's playing on the NFL today? They were saying, what should we do to be saved? It was personally applied. The Spirit of God used it. And, and what happened, lives were transformed. 3,000 people were saved. The church was born. The body of Christ came to life. The Bible is the authority. Now, friends, the Bible's not the authority in your life if you don't read it, if you don't study it, if you're not in it. I want to just invite you into something. This week... At Chapel Point, we're starting a whole new series of Bible studies and classes to help you get in the Word of God together. It's not too late. 
If, they, if you, anybody says to you it's too late, just say, Jim Jeffrey said it's not too late. We'll sign you up. We want you to be engaged with the Word of God. It's not too late to do that. But it's going to be launching most of our classes on Wednesday night. We're having classes at Byron Center. We're having classes all through the week. There's opportunities for you to learn and grow. The Bible needs to be the authority. Are you living under the authority of Scripture? And friends, God's calling us. He's called us out. He's called us together, and he's called us on mission. He's called us to biblical community, exalting Christ as the head of the church and as our Lord, being controlled by the Holy Spirit, living on mission for Christ, depending on God in prayer, and rooting your life in the Word of God. God's called us to that. Are you living in biblical community? Maybe this is the year where you need to jump into a small group. Are you willing to grow and change this year to be conformed to Christ? What are you willing to sacrifice? How are you willing to serve? Friends, 2024, God has some things in mind. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on the movement of God. I read the book of Acts and I say, I want in on that. I want in on that. I don't want to play church. I want to be a part of a movement of God in the body of Christ. How about you? Father in heaven, I pray for every person that's listening online, every person that is in the gym, every person that is here in the worship center, every person that is over and, and on our other campuses. God, I pray. I pray that we would get on board with what you're doing that we would live in biblical community, that we would be ecclesia, called out from the world, called together for fellowship and, and learning and encouragement and prayer, and called on mission into this world. God, may we be a part of your movement. In Jesus' name, amen.